Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. I just spoke with Nathaniel Comfort about his recent book, The Science of Human Perfection, How Genes Became the Heart of American Medicine. This was published in 2012 by Yale University Press. This is a book that is an extraordinary pleasure to read. It's written in a style that's very lively, it's very vibrant, and it puts the transformations, the actions, the decisions, the evolution, the relationships of human beings right at the center of the story. The story traces the emergence and really fundamental intertwining of two threads of the history of science and medicine that most people tend to keep separate or at least think of as, if not qualitatively different types of endeavor, then at least totally different in terms of value. These two threads are medical genetics and eugenics. Nathaniel shows over the course of the story the ways in which these, what we might think of as two realms, medical genetics and eugenics, were actually not just intertwined throughout the 20th century, certainly in the context of America and American scientists and doctors, but also in a way mutually defined each other. He also shows that the kinds of value judgments that we typically bring to understanding and writing about, thinking about, medical genetics on the one hand and eugenics on the other, namely medical genetics good, eugenics bad, are actually very, very simplistic and in fact inaccurate. If we look at the history of the kinds of practices and the kinds of endeavors and goals that were at the root of both of these endeavors. And so it's a story that by tracing the actions and the the works and the transformations and technologies and spaces of American sciences and doctors over the course of the history of these practices really helps show how ultimately medical genetics isn't all, as I say later on in the conversation, unicorns and rainbows, and eugenics isn't or and wasn't all this horrible, bad, um, negative set of practices uh, that we associate with that endeavor. You'll hear, in addition to um, getting an overview of the book and its really wonderful narrative over the course of the conversation, you'll also hear an account of Nathaniel's own interest in and really fascinating approach to writing a historical account. And so toward the beginning of the interview, um, I urge you to listen in for his comments on the ways that he approaches the craft of the historian in terms of his own background and thinking um, really carefully about writing from the perspective of how it's going to be read um, and thinking about things like character and structure and the kinds of elements of a historical narrative that we often associate more with fiction and fiction writing craft than with history writing craft, even though we should, I think, be taking much more time to think about this as writing historians. So it was a really fascinating book. It was a really, uh, it was really a pleasure to talk with Nathaniel about this, and I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. We're here today to talk with Nathaniel Comfort about his recent book, The Science of Human Perfection, How Genes Became the Heart of American Medicine. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Nathaniel, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. For me, too. So could you start us off, as is traditional for NBSTS, um, to talk a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to the field of the history of modern biology and medicine in the first place? Uh, well, like uh, I would say probably a lot of people in in the field, I, I, have, uh, I came to it through a kind of a zigzagging path, uh, not to say a checkered career, but I... I started out in um, in biology. Uh, I majored in marine biology, and then I went on to uh, to a graduate program where I studied uh, neurobiology and animal behavior. And I got to do some fun uh, field work in South America and so on. Um, but the the laboratory work in in that particular uh, specialty was really not um, not my cup of tea, and I decided that I liked, although I loved the idea, uh, the ideas of of biology. I wasn't really cut out for a life in the lab, and so I wanted to I wanted to write about the science so I could stay immersed 
in it. Um, but, but, but really words were my, were my metier. So I, I thought there were two basic kinds of approaches to writing about science, science journalism and the history of science. And so I ended up actually doing both of those. Uh, and my work today still, uh, I, I still consider that I kind of have one foot in in science journalism while doing you know uh, serious scholarly work in in the history of science and medicine so i started out actually working um i was uh, i was the science writer at cold spring harbor laboratory uh, oh, no for kidding. five years yeah and uh so i worked for you know i was i was james watson's writer and uh i got to meet the, the you know some of the the famous scientists there and hang out in the bar with the with the researchers and so on and and i really really enjoyed that and it was while at cold spring harbor that i decided to go back for my phd uh in the history of science and that's how i ended up doing my dissertation and my my first book on barbara mcclintock who was a scientist there Wow, that's actually really interesting to hear also because one of the things, um, and I know I've mentioned this to you briefly, I think, when we were setting up the interview, but I'll also mention it for the benefit of listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, that it's extraordinarily well written. It's just it's one of the clearest, most vibrant examples of academic prose that I've had the um, good fortune to come across and to read in a long while. And so it seems like it's a, the background in science journalism actually... Um, probably really helps with that. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think it does. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot about the writing and, um, you know, I, I do try to make it uh, lively and, and clear and use, um, you know, I, I borrow, I borrow some techniques from, from uh, creative nonfiction and, and even from fiction. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm used to writing for an audience that doesn't have specialized knowledge about my very specialized topics. Um, so, yeah, that that is partly where that comes from. So super briefly, because you just mentioned um, that you borrow techniques from creative nonfiction and from fiction, and because this is one of the big pieces of advice that I often give uh, graduate students in academic disciplines and people who ask me what I use when I write, I, I actually read a lot of books for on employment and on other kinds of uh-huh. um, characteristics of writing fiction that are meant for fiction writers, but that I feel like actually help a lot um, for those of us writing history. So what are some of the, um, even just like a couple or few techniques that you're drawing from or resources you're drawing from creative nonfiction and from fiction writing that shape the way you sit down and write a book like this? Well, I, I would highlight uh, I mean, I, I could go on at length for this, but I, on this on this topic, it's one of my favorite questions. But, but let me just mention two: um, <clears throat> character and structure. Okay, um, characters, people are sort of out of fashion in in uh, in, in scholarship nowadays. It's, it's sort of uh, remarkable to me. But you know, I always try to have people in my in my stories history is is a kind of story it's a true story so so it's a very special kind of story but it's a story and i and i'm always trying to tell tell stories that have real live human beings in them uh and that that so i so i love character driven fiction uh and i i read a lot about that and i read you know i i pay attention to how how characters are introduced and um you, you know and and how you bring in different sensory modalities and so forth to to make a a narrative come come alive uh, and, the, and the second you know is, is structure i pay a lot of attention to to the structure of uh, of everything I write, even if it's only a you know a six hundred word book review, uh, and certainly at the level of, of articles, chapters, and and books, um, I think about how how I'm going to organize the piece, and I have I have some kind of outline, uh, and it may not be a traditional linear you know. A one B two kind of uh, kind of outline. It could be it could be anything, 
uh, and so, for example, there is um, there's a, a series, two or three articles by uh, by the nonfiction writer John McPhee that appeared in the New Yorker. Uh, the the latest one just appeared a few weeks ago, and they're they're on structure. And McPhee is my is one of my idols in in writing, uh, and and I was just and these are really kind of nerdy technical articles about how he organizes his you know how he, how he develops structure. He's one of the masters of structure. Uh, and he has, and he goes through it in in great detail. And I was just riveted reading these things because, um, you know, I I knew that he was interested in structure, and I, I map out McPhee's works. You know, I think I, I try to figure out what is the structure that he's using in in his in his writing, and I was just just tickled to to see that. The, a lot of my intuitions about how he worked were, were basically right. Um, so I would I would commend those articles uh, by McPhee on structure in the New Yorker uh, to any reader who's interested in how you put together a narrative. I mean, I've seen those articles. I think in, in at least one of them that I've seen, he has he includes actual maps or visual diagrams in some. Yeah, them, right. It's yeah. You know, those are fun. That's right. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna that, include links. Um, to those when I post this, so that oh, wonderful! Can see, yeah, this great yeah. advice. Yeah, uh, you know, his outlines could be a spiral, you know, or th- or three different arrows pointing to one another, or a wandering line. They're, they're not they're, they're not traditional outlines a lot of times at all, mm-hmm. and that that really frees up the writer to to think uh, to think creatively about how to put together a, a story. So this, the particular story that we have at hand to talk about has brought you from Barbara McClintock in your um, first book in your dissertation to um, Jim Watson and Cold Spring Harbor and a bunch of other really fascinating characters in this study of the relationship and or relationships between medical genetic or medical genetics, that's right, and eugenics um, in its various different instantiations. So um, this is a great story, and you've already talked a little bit about your own background working with some of the um, protagonists or, or actors or characters in this book um, prior to deciding, I guess, um, to sit down and write it as a narrative. But what in particular brought you to this project and to the decision to write this book after um, writing the McClintock book and as part of your larger research trajectory? Um, so th- there's a very... There's a very specific story. I, I know. I remember the exact moment I decided to write a book on the history of American medical genetics, and it was when I was. Uh, it, it was shortly after the McClintock book came out, so it was about 2001 or possibly the first part of 2002, and um, yeah, that long ago. And I was giving a talk at Johns Hopkins. And I wasn't yet on the faculty here. Uh, I was still at, at George Washington University. And I was invited to give a talk in uh, one of the science departments at the medical school. And on my and and I knew that um, th- that one of the the um, you know, one of the giants of Johns Hopkins medicine was was Barton Childs. Uh, he was in his 80s at that time, uh, very senior and very distinguished person, and I just wanted to meet with him. So I got him put on, I requested uh, a, a meeting with him as part of my, you know, as part of my day at Hopkins. And by the time I, and so I, and I got to meet him and by the, and we went out for coffee and we sat and talked and it just went all over the place. And I found him a, a, a riveting character. And, uh, and by the time I got back from that meeting, I knew what my next book was going to be. Uh, I didn't know exactly what shape it was going to take or what I was going to say about it, but I knew that, that I wanted to know more about childs and more about medical genetics and i realized okay you know there is a story here and there's not much written on it and this is what i want to do so you start us off in the preface uh, explaining this book as a history of promises which is um, i think a really wonderful way of framing the entire thing 
I've already mentioned that the book traces a history of the relationship between medical genetics and eugenics. And you mentioned early on, and, and now I'll just um, say a few things just to kind of set up the basic premises of the book for listeners. Uh, you say early on that medical genetics or heredity stemmed from two major impulses, an impulse toward the relief of suffering and an impulse toward human improvement. Now, rather, treating, rather than treating eugenics in the book as a, um, quote, contaminant of good, honest biomedicine, the book actually reframes what we think of when we think about eugenics in its history as ultimately being about, like medical genetics, human improvement and the relief of suffering. So to do this, what the book does is follow a group of American scientists and, and medical practitioners, doctors, through various stages of the 20th century, from the emergence of Mendelian genetics all the way through to, by the end of the book, we're in the Human Genome Project. There are two major subversive aspects of this account that you're giving us, uh, and these are just two major subversive um, elements of the story, and there are many other ways in which this story really I think, very productively upends what we think we know about the history of medicine and, gen- and eugenics as a concept in its history. So you um, both at the same time trace this medical thread through early human genetics, which really does the work of kind of positioning the period as less, um, and using a quote here, confused and malicious than it's been depicted in the past. I mean, a lot of us think of eugenics and we think bad, right? We think eugenics equals horrible. And this is not the work that the book is doing. And it's actually really, really interesting because of that. Um, And at the same time, and conversely, genetic medicine actually comes to be seen as actually also more complicated and not as wholly wonderful and shiny and unicorns and rainbows as it has typically been. Okay, so just to get that out of the way so that listeners know what we're talking about, unicorns and rainbows. So the book, um, as we move into the chapters of the book, the book is founded on a bunch of really fascinating kinds of research. And one of the kinds of research that you single out right at the beginning is oral interviews, and I know that um, you're also interested. You're also involved, as was um, or as is Sally Smith Hughes, who we interviewed for the channel um, a little while ago uh-huh. in uh, the Oral History of Human Genetics Project. So, oral interviews seem uh-huh. to be really at the um, foundation of the kind of work that you were doing for the book. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. What was the um, how what what was the scope of the interviews that were, you were doing? How foundational was that in shaping? the structure of the story as it emerged for you? And was there anything notable about that process that you'd want to share as it pertains to the, um, the research for this book in particular? Yeah, sure. Um, the, the oral histories are important. And, and again, that comes back to, I think, um, you know, has roots in, in my, in my training in, in science writing and journalism. Um, Oral history interviewing, interviewing as a as a scholarly methodology is different from interviewing a you know as a journalist, but there are there is some overlap, and I, I'm really fascinated by how we use uh, oral testimony as a as a scholarly source as as primary sources. Um, so. N- Fairly early on into the into this project, must have been about two thousand three, two thousand four. Uh, I w- received a note from a um, from a woman out at uh, UCLA named Marsha Meldrum. Uh, she and I were uh, graduate students together. We had the same advisor, uh, Ruth Schwartz Cowan, and. Um, so we we knew each other a bit. She was she was uh, a few years ahead of me, but um, but we knew each other. And and she asked me if I wanted to be part of an oral history of human genetics project that uh, that she was that she was starting up. And I said uh, yes. That sounds like it would it would fit very nicely with my uh, with my new research project. So. I was um, there, so we, there are several interviewers involved uh, on the project at various times, including graduate students of mine and and folks out at UCLA. And we uh, we interviewed. Let's see, we've we've got well over two hundred hours of of interview material uh, with 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 forty plus. Um, 
scientists as scientists as well as um, as well as technicians and uh, clinicians and so forth um, but it's focused mainly on the on the basic um, both basic research clinical research and uh, and to some extent bioethics and, and genetic counseling and we were doing you know these were these were, you know, multi-session uh, life history interviews, five to seven hours in, in length usually, and um, so they covered a lot of aspects. They weren't all just focused on my my particular research project, but those were a, a very important source for me in um, in figuring out how to frame this story you know writing you know i knew i wanted to work on the history of medical genetics but i didn't know that but then the question was what's the story there right uh this wasn't going to be just a, a a chronology but i needed to i i needed to have an argument and talking to a lot of medical geneticists really helped me figure out what the stories were, you know, what the what the the story was in the history of American medical genetics, and I kept, you know, and and, and the main, uh, the, I, I would say the the main thing that came through to me that 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 formed the the core of of the and it ended up forming the core of the book was the way in which ideas kept coming out that reminded me of approaches that were used by progressive era eugenicists. I'd, I'd done a fair amount of reading in uh, on the history of eugenics. Um, you know, it was part of my graduate work and early, uh, you know, early scholarship. And, you know, and I was here, I was talking to people who I, who I liked and respected and, and whose work I admired. And they kept bringing up ideas that, that connected back to the history of eugenics. And, and these were not, you know, evil, uh, evil people by any means, right? So I had to, I had to wrestle with that and say, okay, but I thought eugenics was was bad, you know, and 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 here were people saying things like, we need to, uh, we need to find out how to use genetic knowledge to eliminate human disease to to keep people from being born who are who who would be suffering to re, to reduce suffering on parents and uh and, and so forth and i had to figure out how to make that make sense with the fact that these were distinguished honorable nice people yeah uh and and i think that's that's really what lies at the at the core of the book Again, history is made of people, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, what, so how do we get from there into the core of the book? Well, the book opens up in Chapter 1 with four scientists starting a journal club in 1950, and you talk about how significant this was for the time. This journal club was called the Galton uh, Garrett Society, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing any of these names, and so I'm sure you'll, you'll correct me and, and say the correct pronunciation if I'm wrong, but I'm going to say the Galton Garrett Society. The book mm-hmm, uses um, Galton and Garrett to represent the two, really two forces or a pair of forces that have helped shape medical genetics over the 20th century. And so this, these are really, um, this sets up a, a pair that is going to continue reverberating throughout till the very last part of the book. And so let's talk about them briefly, especially for listeners who may not be familiar with one or both of them. So most readers and listeners are probably going to be familiar with or at least have heard of Francis, Francis Galton. This was the cousin of Charles Darwin. He coined the term eugenics, um, and he was, among other things that you mentioned in the book, uh, the inventor or developer of a gumption reviver, which was one of my um, one of my favorite moments in the book. And I, I'll just leave that out there tantalizingly, so listeners will have to read the book to see what this gumption reviver machine was. And then there was Archibald Garrett, which um, listeners and readers may be less familiar with. He was a younger contemporary of Galton. Um, and he was actually a pediatrician interested in biochemistry who um, worked on, among other things, um, a condition called alcaptonuria, which is a condition that darkens urine. So can you talk a little bit about um, what's the distinction between these two guys in terms of the larger arguments that are being made in the book? And, and what's important about their different approaches to heredity? Okay. 
so first of all, the, the reason I use that anecdote to open the story is because that lets me because they are actors categories, right? They, these are these are figures who are held up by some of my some of the the contemporary figures who are who are my characters in the story, and so you know I'm I'm using using them as uh, as emblems of the ways in which medical geneticists construct the history of their own field and then i i try to complicate that by pulling out implications of both of these two people so i use them as 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 emblems of of two major strands uh in in the history uh and then but it, you know when you know as a scholar when i look more closely at at, at these figures the aspects of their work and their ideas came out that that, that complicated that story of these actors categories and allowed me to, to to nuance it and and step back and not just celebrate the ways in which you know it, it, the 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 sort of not to just celebrate the master narrative of medical genetics but to but but to contextualize it and and complicate it so so with that um galton and so i use them to 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 symbolize a, a number of of uh not really binaries but but axes of um you know continua or spectra th- that i that i see you know as helping us understand uh how how medical genetics developed galton stands for as you pointed out he's 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 well known as the father of eugenics um he was also one of the uh one of the inventors of biostatistics he invented the technique of linear regression and the, the one of the uh, earliest descriptions of, of of correlation and many other techniques uh so he is he he stands for a scientific approach he was interested he's he's commonly associated with the bell curve uh, a population approach to to um to human qualities or or any aspect of nature so he used scientific methodology uh and so so statistical population based and um he thought that the that that truth in nature was was often masked by noise by variation and so forth so his techniques were invo- often involved ways of trying to strip away the the noise that obscured the real trends and real patterns in in nature and that's where the bell curve comes in um also another aspect of of golden's work obviously is human improvement the 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 desire to take a rational approach to solving social problems a scientific approach using science to solve social problems okay uh garrett is is sort of his counterpart he was trained as as you say a, a, as a pediatrician he was a medical man and where galton is interested in the population and in stripping away variation as noise garrett was interested in the individual as a as a pediatrician he was trying to find out why this patient has this disease now and so he thought that that looking that looking precisely at variation was was the way to find out what was really going on with 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 human nature uh so his approach was individual and personal and medical in contrast to galton's more scientific approach and he had he had no interest in in eugenics or 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 improvement of the species in the long term he was interested in in this patient right now and those you know we we often have told the story of the emergence of medical genetics as you know it's been widely associated with you know uh, widely documented that that there's a connection between early human genetics uh and eugenics but the the story is usually told as 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 human genetics getting 
tangled up with with eugenics as a kind of a, a, a contaminant or a pseudoscience or something, and then moving beyond that by mid-century, stripping away the eugenic component and, and moving into a, a, a legitimate medical science. So there's a medical turn going away from, from eugenic concerns with intelligence and the population and, uh, you know, feeble-mindedness as the great bugbear and, and, and a medical turn leading to a, a kind of a rationalized, medicalized human genetics. And I tell a different story in which I show that, that those two aspects, those two strands were present right from the, right from the beginning and continue all the way to the present day. Now, once we set up that as a foundation in the first chapter, you bring us into a new set of characters in this elaboration of the story of how medicine becomes genetic and becomes really an integral part of the history of, of eugenics and vice versa. So chapter two opens with Irving Fisher kissing his wife goodbye and leaving to seek treatment for tuberculosis. Along the way, this, um, this guy who you describe as disciplined, almost totally humorless, he doesn't have caffeine, he doesn't consume alcohol, pepper, or tobacco, he meets up with John Harvey Kellogg. Um, who listeners and readers might be familiar with for other reasons um, outside of the history of uh, genetics and uh, eugenics and uh, these kinds of issues. He goes to stay in Kellogg's sanitarium. And along the way, they develop this relationship that really transforms the way Fisher thinks about um, the issues that he's thinking about and really helps make him a really a leading figure in the progressive era health reform movement and in early efforts to nationalize health care. So would you talk a little bit about what's happening with Fisher and Kellogg um, in this uh, part of the book and how this relates to this kind of direction that eugenics takes in its association with hygiene in this period? Right. Uh, it's the, that story is really about the, the, the public health roots of eugenics uh, in America the history of of American eugenics has been dominated. Uh, scholarship on on American eugenics has been dominated by an, uh, an association that's been around for you know people have uh, scholars have been writing about this for more than twenty years by the connection between American eugenics and agriculture. Uh, eugenics was defined by Charles Davenport at one point, uh, the sort of dean of American eugenics, as the science of human improvement through better breeding. And we've been, you know, really kind of obsessed with the idea of eugenics as being uh, a, a sort of, you know, horse breeding applied to humans, right? And that's there. I don't deny that that's, that that's there. But there's another dimension in which eugenics was, uh, eugenicists were also very interested in public health. Um, and a public health connection with eugenics has been shown, uh, in, in the scholarship on eugenics in other countries, for example, in France and to some extent Scandinavia. Um, but that hasn't been part of the, the narrative of American eugenics. And I show that that's, that in fact was very strong. And Fisher is a great, was a great uh, way for me to tell that story um, as the sort of centerpiece of, of, of a, of this this narrative he's the um he, he receives almost no attention in the in the scholarship on on american eugenics he's he's uh hardly present at all but he was a major figure he 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 was the founder of the american eugenics society uh in 1921 and so you know he deserves i think uh to 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 be explored and yeah, you bring up the story about his his uh, tuberculosis, and so it shows how he got into eugenics, not even concerned with what we think of as hereditary disease, but rather with an infectious disease. So, what does eugenics have to do with infectious disease? Um, physicians dating back to the the late nineteenth century had been interested in in infectious disease. Uh, as a um, and, and particularly in predisposition to to infectious disease such as tuberculosis, uh, and that um, 
So that had been part of a, a, a big debate going back many decades already by this time. And eugenicists were, were fascinated by the idea of predisposition to disease. Uh, and that, of course, is a major focus of, uh, of, of genetics and genomics today. So, you know, this shows that this, that this goes back quite far. Kellogg and his, his sanitarium, he was one of the, the um, you know, most colorful figures in American public health during the progressive era. Uh, this is the same Kellogg as in uh, Kellogg's cornflakes and, and the breakfast cereal king. Um, a lot of that work was actually done by, by William Harvey's brother. Uh, they had a major uh, and highly publicized feud and they, uh, and, 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 um, William Keith got the cornflakes patent and, and, uh, John Harvey got the, the sanitarium. And there's a wonderful, um, uh, very funny comic novel about this by, uh, by the, the author, uh, T.C. Boyle, which, The Road to Wellville, which I, I greatly enjoy. Uh, so he was, and Kellogg was a, uh, was an avid eugenicist. He, he thought, you know, what's a public health guy who's, who's interested in mainly in things like yogurt enemas? What's he doing worrying about, uh, about, about genetics and heredity? Um, he saw that as a, uh, as he was a kind of, kind of a holistic practitioner. And so he thought that one's constitution, one's heredity, was an essential part of one's health. And uh, Fisher was, was very sympathetic to this idea. And it was, it was Kellogg who got Fisher interested in heredity. Fisher went on to, uh, to become a major champion of public health and, and ideas of heredity. And it was, uh, and he, and I detail in the book a number of his, uh, a number of his projects and they, and show how they all built up to his, you know, what he considered his crowning achievement, uh, in this field, um, which was, uh, which was the founding of the American Eugenics Society. Fisher wasn't, by the way, uh, a, a geneticist or even a scientist. He was an economist at Yale and he was very well known, um, in in that field uh but so this was kind of a almost a side project for him it was something that he did he did really out of passion um but he so so that also shows that there was uh that there's a social science dimension to eugenics that also helps complicate our our conception of the history yeah, thank you so much. Now, um, toward the or at, at some point in that chapter, also, I'd, and I don't want to ask you um, to talk about this, um, just so that we can move on to some of the other fascinating characters and developments here. But I will just mention for listeners who are interested, this is this chapter introduces one of many cases throughout the book in which we see meet, physical meetings of people, so conferences in particular, being important historiographical sites and spaces, and so. Um, I just wanted to mention that because from, from the perspective of the craft of the history of science and medicine, it's actually a really important um, kind of uh, case to model. And I think it's really interesting to look at conferences, actually, as these like sites of foment and sites of transformation. And, um, so that was a really interesting also part of that chapter and part of, I think, many other chapters later on in the book as well. So, I agree. Thanks. So as we move into the book, um, into Chapter 3 and Chapter 4, I won't ask you to talk about Chapter 3, but I'll just say a, a little bit about what's going on, and then we'll move on to Chapter 4. So Chapter 3 is fascinating in terms of looking at the people involved in this story as well. It opens with an account of a letter by a country doctor from North Carolina named William Allen. And what this chapter does is it sets up um, sort of two ways of thinking about or two approaches um, toward academic, academic genetics, which really shows uh, this point of transformation where academic genetics becomes integrated with medicine thanks to a few pioneers like this country doctor, William Allen. And you set out here these two different approaches, one of which um, takes heredity as constitutional as part of the soil. And this is mainly done by Garadian's holists and synthesizers who are interested in bringing together concerns with heredity, with broader um, and broader areas of knowledge, and with um, broader kinds of thinking about heredity and um, 
versus approaches to genes as the seeds of disease. And you talk in that case also, and this is why I just wanted to mention this, about the emergence of blood group genetics in the 1920s. And so readers Mm. and listeners who are interested in the history of medicine and, and in how the development of something that we take right now as to be as fundamental as blood groups really is a very important part of this story and part of this um, set of trends or set of threads that are constantly interwoven throughout this story of medical genetics and eugenics. Um, So I just wanted to kind of set that up. And if there's anything in there in particular that you want to talk about, we can do that um, in a moment. But but because we just uh, talked a little bit about conferences as important sites or spaces of this story, um, we talked a little bit about Kellogg Sanitarium as an important space. Chapter 4 really also opens up this idea of the spaces of this history. Um, This is a chapter that opens with the demise of the Eugenics Record Office in 1939. And the Eugenics Record Office was established by someone who you mentioned before, Charles Davenport. And you talk here about the creation of a new kind of institution called the Heredity Clinic. So um, would you talk a little bit about what is the importance of what's happening at the Heredity Clinic and how does that integrate with the larger um, kind of argument or set of arguments that you're making in this, in this part of the book? Okay, the Heredity Clinics were, were fascinating. They were started, as you mentioned, just months after the demise of the, uh, of the Eugenics Record Office and, and the, at the end of 1939. And the 1940s and early 50s are, the, are a kind of a dark ages in the history of uh, eugenics and human genetics. Most scholars have have turned their gaze to to England and Europe when looking at this period and so you know any any place where there's where, where there's uh you know not a lot of, of attention certainly makes me want to dig in there and say okay something must have been going on and in fact a lot was going on um and and the heredity clinics are um you know so in the in the conventional narrative of, of, of eugenics and human genetics, you have this eugenic period that ends, at, you know, in the, in the thirties and then nothing much happens. And then when you look back in the, in the 1950s, again, out pops modern medical human genetics and the heredity clinics are really the missing link between those. They, they are, uh, I call them hybrid institutions because they were, they were explicitly founded on the model of the eugenics record office. Uh, in one case, they even used, you know, borrowed their stationery. Uh, so then they were, they were very interested in long-term goals of, of human improvement in the permanent elimination of disease and the, in, in the, in the, in the improved public health, you know, genetic public health and, and genetic preventive, preventive medicine. But they also show signs of uh, the, you know, aspects, characters that we associate with modern medical genetics. They were doing good, rigorous, controlled studies. They were, they were trying to identify new human genes for disease. Um, they were, they were doing a, com- they, they invented genetic counseling. And so, the fascinating thing about them, is, and there were there were three major ones that I that I cover in the in the book. Uh, one at Wake Forest University, uh, which was the one that William Allen started, and then at the University of Michigan, uh, the the best known person there was uh, James Neal, who's a, a, a legendary figure in in human genetics, and then. Uh, then also the Dite Institute for Human Genetics uh, in Minnesota, and they they were all started about the same time, 1941-42, and they all knew each other. It was a very small world, and people were moving back and forth between them and, and so forth. So so they really it's, it really makes sense to look at them as um, as a kind of a, a multivalent unit, and they it, and it's it's. I found it fascinating to to 
really dig into how they practiced uh, their version of, of medical genetics. And each one had a little bit different character. Uh, Wake Forest focused more on the medical side of things, um, and, the, and the folks at Michigan were more doing more scientific. And I, I bring in the themes of Garodian and Galtonian approaches that, that we talked about earlier. And and really show how there isn't a a firm dividing line between eugenics and medical genetics. They were seen as really two aspects of the same thing. In fact, medical genetics was eugenics. That was the only reason for doing for bringing genetics into medicine at that time, uh, which is one of the important points in, in chapter three, e- eugenics wasn't an obstacle to genetics entering medicine. It was the only reason that genetics was brought into medicine in the first place. And the reason for that is that, uh, that it enabled you to do prevention. You couldn't do anything about about most hereditary disease. Once somebody had the disease, uh, there was very little you could do to to treat it. There were a, a few cases where you could uh, you could palliate or or you know bring in some environmental uh, environmental treatments. But for the most part, they recognized that that the only thing you could do clinically about genetic disease was prevent it, and that meant at that time uh, restricting people's mating habits. Okay, and so eugenics was was essentially it was integral to the development of what we consider modern medical genetics. So after so after we look at these spaces, and it's a very very rich chapter again that sets out I think some of the complexities uh, that are bound up with eugenics as potentially very different kinds of things in different spaces in this period, we move to how the geneticists learn to start worrying and love mutation, um, which is obviously a play on um, the title of a a rather famous movie or the subtitle of a rather famous movie that um, listeners will be, I'm sure many will be familiar with. So there's so much in this chapter I could ask you about, and what I'm going to do is restrict myself to one, to asking you about one sentence. Um, because this is okay. one of the, one of the most powerful sentences in this chapter. You say the atomic bomb is the best thing that had ever happened to human genetics. Um, so that's a quotation. Um, so I think the best approach to this chapter is just to. Can you talk about that a little bit? So how how is the atomic bomb? Um, how did this transform? Or what are some of the most um, important ways that this transformed human genetics? Um, and, and would you talk about that in the context of the work this chapter is doing? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the the one word answer is mutation. Okay, uh, human genetics was, as we talked about a little bit before, in the in the progressive era, uh, was was mainly what was I don't know about mainly, but but heavily focused on <clears throat> on on really complex diseases, what we would call today uh, complex genetic disease, which is, which is non-Mendelian, right? Uh, disease that, has, that involves multiple genes and, uh, as well as environmental factors. And you know, those were conditions that were most important to, uh, that, that, were, that were socially relevant, diseases that a lot of people were dying from, you know, tuberculosis and, and cholera and so forth. Um, and so there were, there were only a handful of simple Mendelian genes known in humans that had been documented. Uh, and so, so, but, but of course that's, those are the kinds of diseases that you can do the, the, the most rigorous science on, especially given the the knowledge of the day. And what the atomic bomb did was to was to highlight for for the general public the threats of mutation and so it brought genetics human genetics onto the national stage 
So I talk about, uh, you know, one of the figures in this, in this chapter is Herman Joseph Muller, who won the Nobel Prize in uh, 1927 for his work on Drosophila genetics, where he showed, uh, he demonstrated the, uh, the X-ray induced mutation in fruit flies. And so, and he'd been, uh, he was also, and, and this will be well known to historians of genetics. He was, uh, he had been interested in eugenics for a very long time. He had a, a popular book uh, called Out of the Night in which he talked about the dangers of mutation, but it, it didn't get a whole lot of traction because there was, because it wasn't a huge threat. He was m- mostly talking about things like background background radiation and and uh, and medical x-rays and and the x-ray machines used by shoe salesmen to you know to to measure your feet and so forth and when uh, you know in the in the immediate aftermath of of Hiroshima and Nagasaki mutation became a huge social issue and so within months of the dropping of the bombs Muller was was refashioning his 20-year-old arguments about the dangers of mutation in light of this enormous new national global threat. And, uh, and with that, he really did get some traction, and he quickly became one of the, uh, you know, really the leading national spokesman about the dangers of atomic radiation to our genes, the, the impact on our DNA. And uh, one of the, the centerpieces of this chapter is the formation of the American Society of Human Genetics, which uh, was founded in 1948. And, uh, and I show how the, the early history of um, the, the social history of, of the atomic bomb, the atomic age, was integral to the founding of this first professional society of human genetics. Muller was made the, the, uh, the first president of the society, and in his presidential lecture, uh, Our Load of Mutations, he made the case for why you need a professional society of human genetics right now. And the reason was that uh, that the, the, the threat of mutation was so great that we needed a humane eugenic program in order to offset the, the, the dangers of atomic radiation. Right. And so thank you so much. And so also um, over the course of this chapter, as we sort of move into the other chapters, we see some really interesting and really important transformations in how um, eugenics is understood. And so you show a couple things here that are, I just want to mention for listeners because they seem really important to the, the arguments here. You're showing that practices that had long been associated with negative eugenics actually come to be seen here as relatively benevolent or relatively benign as they start to be considered uh-huh. medical rather than being, you know, associated with building a master race. So what should eugenics be uh-huh. is actually transformed. And you're also, um, especially for people who are interested in the history of public health and the history of medicine, you're showing in this chapter how sterilization and birth control as medical practices, as eugenic practices, actually help shift the objects of eugenicists from populations to individuals. And that becomes a really important part of what's going to happen in the next chapters as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so as we move, because I don't, I actually, I would love to take up two hours of your time because <laughs> it's really fascinating, but, but I, I promise not to do that. And so as we move toward um, the last couple of chapters of the book, um, I, I'll just kind of summarize a little bit about what's going on in chapter six um, and sort of bring us forward um, just to put some things on the table. So uh, chapter six focuses on one of the people who we met at the very beginning of the first chapter who founded this uh, journal group, and this is Victor McCusick. Now, he, um, you show in this chapter at the beginning that he becomes known um, as the father of medical genetics, according to his Johns Hopkins obituary. And you show in here, actually, that um, the, calling him the father um, of this field is actually kind of a misnomer because the field predated him. But he becomes really important and really influential 
not because he's making all these medical or scientific discoveries, but because he becomes really savvy as a gatekeeper to the field, as a kind of broker of knowledge and of its tools. During the late 50s and 60s also, you're showing here how genetics becomes established as a medical specialty, and in part that's made possible because of a couple of really low-tech, or a few, four you mentioned here, really low-tech developments that may seem to us to be kind of, you know, what do you mean that's transformative, but actually um, really transform the, the kind of knowledge that was possible um, of human heredity. So included in these four items, I'll just single out two, which are really striking. A researcher figures out how to add deionized water instead of saline to his culture medium. And this is actually really important because when you add deionized water instead of salt, the cells swell up, spreading out the chromosomes in the nucleus and making them easier to see. And also, the somebody figures out that rather than um, fixing, embedding, and slicing materials into um, to, to make slides to look at them under a microscope, if you just put a drop of medium on the slide, plop on a cover slip, and then just kind of squish it with your thumb, that works too. And this actually is better because it keeps more chromosomes intact and thus more countable. So this is a really fascinating part of the book in terms of the history of technology, as we see some really, what we might think of as really low-tech solutions to problems having really transformative um, impacts on the way we understand human life. Uh, so this is a really fabulous part of the book. You're also showing here um, that the chapter, or the name of chapter six, is Getting Their Organ, and you're showing here how also um, cytogenetics actually gives geneticists an organ to work with and makes possible transformations in the field. And I'll, I'll leave that um, there. Um, just you know, to kind if, of think. I, if I could, yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, if I, if I could just jump in for it with one little kind of linkage on on that, uh, and, and I'll, I'll be obviously succinct. But so the 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 emergence of the American Society of Human Genetics was was key because that begins to professionalize the field and that that set the institutional basis for these technical developments that you're that you're mentioning here and um, and the link between the, the history of technology and and Victor McCusick and the father of medical genetics I just would want to point out that it's not I'm, I'm not saying that 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 um, that epithet is undeserved, but rather that that it's uh, it's not predetermined. It's it it, it was contingent, right? Uh, you there could have been other people uh, that you could that you could rationally give that name to. Um, and, Vic, and and what I'm trying to show is is how repu- I've I've had a you know, longstanding interest in how reputations get built in science. And and then you you know you accurately say that it was through you know not a single spectacular Nobel Prize winning discovery, but rather through kind of low status activities of uh, of, of gathering cataloging uh, information, disseminating it, uh, teaching, and so forth. And so yeah, there's there's a theme here of of interest in the in the low tech in the low status kinds of you know what Kuhn would have called normal science, um, and and how they can be really formative in the uh, in the development of of a major field. Thank you. So this brings us to the final body chapter of the book, and this is genetics without sex, and it brings us to one of the first people who um, we talked about in the course of this conversation, and one of the people who you mention is really starting your interest in this field, and that's James Watson. So this chapter opens with um, uh, his memoir, accounts of his memoir, The Double Helix, and traces the story of James Watson through this this chapter as someone who becomes an emblem of, at the same time, the the extreme technical advances, the possibilities, and also the pitfalls, and in particular the ethical pitfalls of the molecularization of medical genetics. And so um, to, to kind of take us into the conclusion of this book, or the, the, this last chapter of the book, can you talk a little bit about Jim Watson and this story? Sort of what is his trajectory here and why in particular, um, this is sort of related, but um, you can, but you know, it's also a separate issue in this chapter or an, an independent issue um, in this chapter. 
how does sex become the sticking point of genetics? And, and how does uh, kind of a way to think about and work with sex as a process for these geneticists transform what's possible in this chapter? Yeah. Uh, so, so, so the, so sex was always, a, uh, as, as you say, a sticking point for, for human genetics in the, back in the eugenic days, Given a desire to prevent genetic disease, as we said, you know, there was nothing you could do to, in most cases to treat genetic disease. All you could do is prevent it. And so that's what I see as one of the origins of, of our focus on preventive genetic medicine today. Uh, and in those days, the only way you could do it was through preventing people from marrying. Right. Uh, and there were um, and. So a lot of the both the social history and the technical history of of medical genetics can be seen as a series of ways of getting around that problem. Uh, and so I talk about a number of different ways that you can do that through uh, developing methods of, of cell culture, which where they borrowed from bacteriology and and uh, figured out ways of 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 uh of quote unquote mating uh just regular somatic cells in in a dish um ways of getting into the, the the body of the individual so you didn't have to worry about uh about about individuals marrying but you if you could if you could get down to the level of uh of the genes themselves, then you could. The vision was that you could you could fix genetic disease uh, without having to worry about who's mating with whom, right? And so that's how we get down to the molecular level. And Watson is the lead character in this story because he is Mister DNA. He's you know as as one of the uh, one of the, the uh, people who solved the structure of uh, of DNA in 1953, um, and he, you know, he went on to to orient his his entire career on making DNA DNA, you know, uh, as we understand it. So, at the DNA level, and and human genetics took a very long time to go molecular. By the way, uh, you know, other other fields of genetics went molecular long before uh, before human genetics or, or medical genetics. Uh, it didn't really happen until after the genetic code was uh, was deciphered in the 1960s, and then you know by 1969, uh, Victor McCusick, uh, who we've talked about, proposed a a a, 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 a biologist's moonshot, which was to to identify and map all of the all of the human genes, and so um, so I look at, at at how how human genetics goes molecular, and because at the molecular level, all you know to to a first approximation, all uh, all, all all organisms are alike, and you can you know the. It, uh, the, the development of recombinant DNA techniques, genetic engineering, and so forth, gave biologists the the ability to begin to cut and paste DNA uh, to 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 pull out genes, to study them, and uh, and enabled them to dream about repairing. Genes uh, and and fixing genetic disease that way, which led to uh, which led to ideas such as as gene therapy. Thank you so much. Um, and so you you're at the final part of the book, or in the final part of the book, in the epilogue. You um, I, again, I won't ask you to talk too much about this, but I'll just mention for listeners. Um, by the end of the book, you've really taken this whole story and all of these characters and all of these interwoven threads and brought it back to the issues that I think started the book um, at the very beginning of the book, which is you know, looking at the ways that genetic medicine has redefined uh, the, the very concept of disease, has redefined individuals as patients. And also you look here um, finally at this interesting interplay between therapy versus enhancement which comes up also in this last chapter we talked about um, and reminds us that the relief of suffering has always been a part of eugenics. And so 
as we started saying at the beginning of this conversation, and here we are um, nearing the end of this conversation, um, just really, really does a, a huge um, service in complicating what we think of when we think of genetics or medical genetics and when we think of eugenics and the, um, the value judgments that I think we bring to those categories. So, Nathaniel, um, we've taken up a lot of your time. There is a ton of stuff in the book that if I had an, another hour or two, I could have asked you about. It's an extraordinarily rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book? Well, I guess I would just say the the, the overarching uh, impetus of the book is to is to highlight some of the ways in which in which genetic medicine is is complicated as you point out um, because I think you know it, it there's, there's an awful lot of of hype and celebration and so forth surrounding current genomics you know everybody's getting their genome screened and so forth and, and personalized genetic medicine uh, is is a very big uh, topic in the news a lot today and, and lots of discussions of uh, are abound of 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 all the promises uh, of genetic medicine. And I think, you know, I just would want to emphasize that, that I share the, uh, you know, the, the optimism for those, for some of those promises, but I think there are also risks associated with it. And so my, my motivation is to, is to highlight those risks along with the promises so that we can, you know, so that we can better avoid them and realize the promises without falling into the, falling into the traps. So now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, as as I've said before, it's a great book. What's next for you? Well, I have a a couple of of projects working. One of the things I'm most interested in right now is, uh, is personalized medicine. As, as I mentioned a, a moment ago, the uh, the idea of the I'm collaborating with a, a colleague here at, at Hopkins uh, in, in my department who is who's an early modernist. Uh, this is Gianna Pomada, and uh, she, we're working together on a project on looking at individuality in medicine over the long view, and so. I've been looking into some of the, the greater history of, of Archibald Garrod, uh, a, a, you know, by now a, a kind of a mythological character in, in the history of medical genetics, and, and looking at the role of the individual and what it means to, to, uh, to, to look at why this patient has this disease at this time and what it means to construct the notion of the individual in terms of his genes, uh, because there's a there's a kind of a, a, a doubling back there. You know, as we, we one of the the advantages that's often posed for uh, for genetic medicine is it allows us to to tailor medical treatment to the individual, but the individual is increasingly defined in terms of his or her DNA. And again, the history of eugenics shows us that that can be problematic, right? Uh, it's, it's not inherently evil, but it carries some pretty big risks. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is to understand better how the individual is, how the construction of the individual in medicine has evolved uh, over over the last couple of centuries. Fabulous. Um, so best of luck with that project, and thank you again for making the time to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.